Hi, I'm Patrick McBriarty. And I'm Christopher Lynch. And together, we are the hosts of Windy Windy City City Historians. Historians. We will share and discuss Chicago history. And some great Chicago stories. Sponsored by Rapunzel. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. Created by two high school friends toward improving financial literacy with simulated financial trading competitions and scholarships. Rapunzel creates excitement and encourages financial education. Check out their free mobile app and the interviews of Brian and Miles in the press. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. No E. Chris, so doing this latest episode 26, 1909, about street renaming and the Chicago plan of 1909. We had a couple notes that we wanted to add before we jump into it. Yes, there's been a lot of water under the bridge since we did this one. And I had a little COVID interrupt us during the holidays, so uh, we didn't get this out as quick as hoped, but we're back at it and hope this episode, it works pretty well. We talk with uh, Dennis McClendon. Yes, and Dennis is known to many as cartographer extraordinaire. And he'll also introduce himself, but one note we should make is we refer to Lakeshore Drive prior, recorded prior to the renaming, which it now is uh, formerly Jean-Baptiste Pointe de Sable Lakeshore Drive, right? Right, yeah. It it used to be Lakeshore Drive, and then they proposed calling it Jean-Baptiste Pointe de Sable Drive, and then they decided on a compromise in the city council. They named it Jean-Baptiste Pointe de Sable Lakeshore Drive. They've combined the names. So that's what they have. Right. And then... You had had a letter to the editor in the Chicago Tribune of yeah. suggesting a shorthand, which, what was your solution? Well, I was thinking like a traffic reporter because I listened to Traffic on the Eights, you know? Right. They always talk about Lakeshore Drive, but they don't have a lot of time to talk about it. So I said in that letter to the editor, I wrote, why don't we call it Dusab Lakeshore Drive? Because Dusab is how the French Haitian speakers call Jean-Baptiste. They call him Dussab. And I thought there's an elegance to that. There's an efficiency to Dussab that I really, really like. So that's why I threw it out there. All right. And it was met, it was met with silence, of course. But <laughs> Well, the paper doesn't talk back, right? Right. But maybe, you know, who knows? Maybe that'll come around again. Cool. Well, let's jump right in with our interview about street renaming and the Chicago plan of 1909. So, Chris, we're here at Dennis McClendon's place, downtown Chicago, for the Windy City Historians podcast, our first podcast live and in person. And it's worth it for two reasons. One is to talk to Dennis, which is always a pleasure. And number two, I'm looking at the view of Dearborn Station from Dennis's condo. And this is an unbelievable view, Dennis. <laughs> Carefully selected. <laughs> and, and can you speak to your credentials? I know you're a cartographer. You've done a ton of map making. You're always a good person to ask, like, what's the next book about Chicago that's coming out? Because usually you're doing the map for it well in advance. So I usually describe myself as Chicago geographer and historian, because you don't actually need any academic credentials to claim either of those. You know, anybody who subscribes to National Geographic can call themselves a a geographer, I suppose. And anyone who reads a lot of history can describe themselves as a historian. So that's the way I usually 
characterize myself, but I draw maps for a living. I'm the designer of the CTA map. I do the RTA map, a lot of tourist and real estate work. And these days I do an awful lot of maps for books about Chicago history or urban history elsewhere in the country, things that just come to me word of mouth or through university presses. And also, I know Jeffrey Barrett, WTTW, constantly calling you because he's always referencing you on his programs. <laughs> we used to joke that perhaps the segment should be called Ask Jeffrey to Ask Dennis. Um, <laughs> but I think some of his interns didn't think that that uh, struck the proper note for... Uh... <laughs> Dennis, how did you become interested in maps? Oh, I was <laughs> always love maps. Tell a joke at our annual Mapmakers Conference that we were the kids who would sneak the National Geographics back to our bedroom, not to look at the unclad native, but to study the maps. Uh, so, uh, but I was always the kid who would follow along on the oil company roadmap as we would drive to visit relatives and sort of make that connection between the lines and the colors on the paper and what I was seeing in the real world. Blue highways. Yeah. Did you have any family members that were interested in maps or interesting maps that you ran into as a kid too that added besides National Geographic? Or? No, it was just whatever I could manage to pick up along the way from uncles and dad, you know, getting something at the gas station in those days. So mm -hmm. before the oil crisis put an end to that. <laughs> You'd go to Sinclair Station and they would have a, a map. Right. Yeah, and, and I'm sure the maps varied in perspective and size. Well, they were done by three companies, basically. Two of the companies' archives are at, currently at the Newberry Library. So there was not a huge amount of variation between what you'd get at the Deep Rock Station and what you'd get at the Phillips 66 Station or the Gulf Station, just printed in different colors. But they were Rand McNally or they were H.M. Goucher or they were General Drafting out of New Jersey. And anyone can go to the Newberry and actually see these. Oh, sure. Maps. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I could never get the map to close. <laughs> That's an art form. <laughs> yeah. You have to study the full semester class. Because <laughs> <laughs> Rand McNally was based here in Chicago, too, ironically. In, and so was Goucher until the 1950s. They were a, an employee of McNally who went and formed their own competing map company here in Chicago. Actually, probably in the South Loop. I've never looked it up. But then in the 1950s, for whatever reason, decided to go to the Bay Area and built a new plant in San Jose. Well, we've been doing this initial series called Laying the Foundation, where we've worked our way from the early exploration of Chicago up through, we just did the reversal of the river. And well, not that we're over, but we've got some more to come. And, and so in preparation for the next several, you come to kind of the, the renumbering of Chicago streets and also the Chicago plan of 1909 by Edward Bennett and uh, Burnham. Daniel and, Burnham. Thank you. Edward Bennett. And so I couldn't think of, nor could Chris, I don't believe, think of any better person that could speak to those topics and has spent hours studying Chicago maps and, and creating them. So. All right. So that's the broad strokes, <laughs> right? So where do you begin, right? You know, what led up to the renumbering of the streets and the Chicago plan. Was it one before the other, or how did those two relate? Well, they don't really relate to each other at all. They are, in my mind at least, side-by-side -side efforts of the progressive era to 
unscramble, rationalize the untidy city. The plan of Chicago, which I can certainly speak to in at great length, is Burnham doing for his city what he had started to do for a number of cities around the country in the aftermath of the World's Columbian Exposition of 1893, which kind of awakened an interest in Americans for tidying up the city. The contrast between the white city that we had down in Jackson Park, lit by electric light, free of horse manure in the streets, free of beggars, free of the smoke and congestion, and with buildings arranged in a harmonious way around a landscape. All of that awakened an interest in Americans we come to call the City Beautiful Movement. Hey, how come our city couldn't be better than it is today? And especially cities like Washington, D.C., under congressional supervision at the time, and Cleveland, San Francisco, invite Daniel Burnham, uh, sometimes assisted by Bennett, to do plans that would remake their cities, and he does. And relatively few of those plans are fully realized. The one for San Francisco, unfortunately, was still in boxes in City Hall when the earthquake and fire struck, destroyed the city. But the Macmillan plan for Washington made the monumental core that we know today, the mall surrounded by the great public buildings with the Lincoln Memorial at one end and Union Station and the Capitol at the other, and that is, in part, uh, Burnham's work. And in Cleveland, he did some good work that resulted in the arrangement of public buildings there. Then he came back to Chicago, knowing that he was ailing and didn't have many years left, and managed to get things arranged for him to do a plan for his city. And that was presented to the city on July 4th of 1909, the plan of Chicago. And as you say, arranged, because there was a couple civic groups and business groups that he got to give him a commission to create this plan, right? Uh, he was a member of the Merchants Club, as I recall, and the Commercial Club wanted to commission the plan. So part of what got arranged was a merger of the two clubs so that it did appear under the auspices of the Commercial Club, which was definitely all the movers and shakers of Chicago at the time all the business leaders. So that's the plan of Chicago. Yeah, right. Meanwhile, a fellow named Edward Brennan, a clerk, as I recall, at Marshall Field and Company, had been concerned about the untidy nature of Chicago's street naming and addressing system, which had just grown like most other eastern cities with no real scheme to it, using the river as a baseline in places or the lake as the zero point in other places. And because subdividers had just given names to their subdivisions, often decades before they became part of the city, as they wished, there were duplicated street names all around the city. So he begins to work on both problems. And because he has a cousin who's on the city council, manages in 1908 to actually get an ordinance passed that 
chooses State and Madison as the zero zero point for all the addresses in the city and lays them out, sets them out on what was called the furlong system that every eighth of a mile you would have a new number. So from 2200 to 2300 would be an eighth of a mile between those addresses. So that is coming decades after Chicago has chosen on the south side to give numbers to the streets and then a decade and a half later to match the house numbers up with those street numbers, what was called at the time the Philadelphia system, actually is not in the beginnings of the city, but all of this is retrofitted to it decades after the streets were built. So Chicago's grid is not something that was the framework that the city was built to. Instead, it was retrofitted on the untidy city decades later and one piece at a time. And that's the part that most Chicagoans don't really get. And that's not really the way to do it, right? In a perfect world, you're going to design a city. You're not going to do it piecemeal like that. I suppose, but we don't have a lot of places where cities get set up from scratch to the size that they ultimately grow to. You know, there are some 20th century experiments in doing things like that, but many of them are never heard from again in the Chicago area. The new century town that eventually becomes Hawthorne Mall and the suburb just to the west or University Park down on the south south suburbs. Or or maybe one of these fake capitals like Brasilia, Brazil or Canberra in Australia (laughs) that it basically was built to be the capital and they probably laid it out the way they wanted to. Right. I'm also thinking of, you know, Chicago had several significant annexations in 1889, so 20 years before this renumbering, where they added, was it Lakeview and Hyde Park and several other areas? Town of Lake, Town of Jefferson, yep. Right. So all of a sudden then you have to incorporate those streets and rationalize those with the core city that had also grown through annexation. Right. So there were, I mean, different people worked on this problem, and there's a fellow named Edward Riley who was the superintendent of maps and plats for the city. And he pushed for several decades to change the names of streets that were on the same line. So once Brennan's addressing scheme was in place, now Riley and Brennan, but more Riley, were really pushing to rename streets so that everything that is, say, 400 West has the same name. Now, that didn't really come to pass. I, I'm trying to remember. I think on the south side, 400 West is Stewart, and on the north side, it's Sedgwick. Anyway, there's some others that are even worse. 1400 West never got all of its names changed, and so it still has a half dozen as you go from north to south, Dover and Southport and several others that don't immediately come to mind. What's interesting about street names is it's sort of like a flying amber. It kind of tells you what people were thinking at the time the streets were named. Like, I imagine the first maps of Chicago were probably surveyed by the Fort Dearborn crew. Fort Dearborn didn't have any streets. They just had an enclosure and, you know, you were either inside or outside the Palisades. That makes sense. (laughs) The, The town site is surveyed in 1830 by a fellow named James Thompson. 
And we don't know how he applied street names to this half square mile that was the original town site. I kind of imagine him sitting at the table at Saganay. Mobian's place. Mobian's Tavern at night, deciding, oh, I'm going to call this one. And he gives it a, you know, gives it a name. Washington. Washington. And I'll call this one Jefferson and this one Franklin. Clinton and Canal, Northwater, Southwater, Westwater, Lake Street, names that came to him. There's, there's a theory that some of them might have been inspired by downstate counties, and that's why he thought of Randolph. But if that were true, it seems to me that he would have included St. Clair and Sangamon, which were the most prominent of the downstate counties at the time, and he didn't. And so I think it was just names as they came to him. If I lived in, in Chicago in 1909-1910 and suddenly you changed my street name or my street address, how was that received? Did you ever get a sense of how locals reacted to this idea? Well, I don't know that I've done the most extensive research on that. I think Patrick Reardon maybe has done much more than I have. I've looked through Brennan's scrapbooks at the Chicago History Museum they don't give, nor the newspaper clippings of the time, they don't really suggest that there was a huge outpouring of outrage. I'll bet there was a lot of grumbling in the saloons <laughs> right. and over the back fences of Canaryville or wherever. Yeah. But the post office supplied postcards giving the new address and new street name, if, if applicable, to Chicagoans and uh, told them to tell their correspondents how to address things. And for months afterwards, the post office did yeoman's work in forwarding mail, which of course at the time, snail mail was a hugely important means of communication for everything. So I think it went relatively smoothly and it was the kind of change to the city that people were not unfamiliar with. The idea that the city might get rationalized in some way, whether it was having the streets and sidewalks elevated in a particular district, having new streetcar lines run, having new elevated lines open, new buildings going up, new subdivisions and additions to the city. The city was changing very rapidly and the day-to-day -day scheme of things, what, what the name and number of your house is, was something that people could cope with fairly easily compared to being laid off from seasonal work or trying to figure out how you were going to house your family once your lease was up on May 1 or October 1. Well, and then I also think about in just 1871, a good portion of the city burnt down and had to be rebuilt. So, so Chicagoans weren't, at least the ones that had been there, and then the people who were new coming to town probably just adapted and, and figured it out. I guess the post office, though, I didn't even think about all the work that you would have to do to do that and get them on board though and they say this is what your address is you're kind of like well okay <laughs> well just as you know we were reminded july 163 we all got zip codes all over the country and we all got postcards i'm old enough to remember them from the local post office telling us what people were supposed to write on any letter or bill addressed to us and we complied <laughs> for the most part. And for those in the digital age, uh, maybe a good point of reference would be the area codes on your phones changing. Because I remember when everybody was 312, sure. including my family, which is on in the suburbs. 
and then it changed to 708 and then more phones and then it changed to 630 and boy people would lose their minds about their area code. <laughs> and and of course today you know the kids mobile phones it's basically where they lived when they got their first mobile phone yes. and, and the area code is fairly meaningless to them now it's just a another prefix but so. a 212 is new york city and then when they started monkeying around with it people were getting angry because now it looked like they were in the provinces right yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And there's still a little bit of that holdover where 312 is sort of a coveted uh, area code. And it's a good beer. From, that, that's from, right. That's right. From, from our Goose Island. Goose Island, yeah. yeah. They're not a sponsor yet, but we, yeah, we take them off. You know. <laughs> but to circle back, you mentioned the Great Chicago Fire, 1871. Of course, we're celebrating the sesquicentenary of that this October. I should say marking more than celebrating. But that changed much less about the physical layout of the city than most people realize or think about. Because it did not erase property lines, the streets, of course, were exactly where they'd been before the fire. Only a third of the city was actually destroyed by the fire, and it was only the buildings. And so people immediately began building back in many cases, the very same building that they'd had before the fire, the architects were able to preserve or reconstruct a lot of the plans, built back very similar buildings on the exact same property lines. The streets, the horse cars still ran exactly where they had before the fire. And nothing about the city's layout, addresses, or even street names changed as a result of the fire. So the idea that somehow the grid was something imposed after the city was erased from the face of the earth is just wrong on many levels. First of all, two-thirds of the city was untouched, and second, none of the city's layout was changed at all. Right. Right. I do recall reading a few accounts, though, where there's you know, a bit of confusion that initially of trying to find a specific address since there weren't any street signs. If you're coming from a different locale that you weren't as familiar with. Right. People for a few weeks certainly had to count off from the remains of the courthouse to figure out if they were on Franklin or Market or where. Yeah. Yeah. All the landmarks were, were gone. <laughs> yeah. Those or, photos, when you look at them, I can't make heads or tails of where the location is unless there's a caption. Yeah. Yeah. Or the water tower in the background. <laughs> yeah. So uh, rationalizing the streets, does that, I mean, as a cartographer, does that make sense to you? Does, do you think they did a reasonably good job? Oh, sure. I, th- I mean, there are, there are similar efforts in uh, other cities around the country in that era. It was the progressive era. It was the era of thinking about how to make things more rational in a lot of areas. So it's roughly the time when Denver, Washington, D.C. get big alphabetic naming schemes. Tulsa has one of the longest runs of alphabetic schemes. Cities that are being founded, like Miami, Florida, or others in that era, are getting the huge runs of numbered streets and numbered avenues. And so the idea that you would have a rational street naming scheme that's coupled with a rational addressing scheme is very much in the air, in the water of the folks that are building cities in the early 20th century. So, I mean, it kind of makes sense too with the advent of the automobile and 
people traveling more than they ever did probably you need that as figuring out where you're going right and though i don't know very much about the history of it it'd be interesting to compare the experience in milwaukee which in a lot of ways is you know chicago's sibling or sort of the uh, <laughs> the control group for chicago uh, to see when they rationalized their house numbering and uh, naming schemes when the, the Germans set that up there. Uh, right. Well, we know the Germans like order. Yes. The, well, the Prussians, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that takes us then to looking at the Chicago plan, which I brought a copy with us and kind of pulled that out. And I, I gotta believe that you've spent a fair amount of time with that plan and know that well. Can you speak to that a bit, your sense of it? Uh, well, sure. I mean, during the centenary of the plan, I put together a little booklet that was pretty widely distributed and is still available on online at planofchicago.org. And also spoke at many suburban libraries and uh, their places around the city about exactly what was in the plan of Chicago and what resulted from it. So it's relentlessly physical. It does not talk about the addressing or street naming at all. None of that's mentioned in there. The only mention of streets is that we're going to widen quite a few of them and we're going to set up some diagonals widenings. We know many of those that actually did happen. About 108 miles of Chicago arterial streets were in fact widened from 19 teens until the 20s in the aftermath of the plan. But that was driven more by the growing automobile ownership and use than really by wanting to honor the plan of Chicago. But downtown, the creation of Michigan Boulevard, the opening up of widening of Pine Street north of the river and its connection to Michigan Boulevard south of the river with the new bridge that opened in 1920, that's very much one of the precepts of the plan of Chicago that this needed to be done for the tremendous amount of north-south traffic that the growing city was having. The creation eventually in 1958 of Congress Parkway, now Ida B. Wells Drive, and the great avenue to the west that, for better or worse, ended up being the Eisenhower Expressway. All of that is anticipated in the plan as the need for a great east-west artery. And then there are others like... Um, and I should just interject, that's yeah. sort of that boulevard system and concept, correct? Well, uh, no, there's some confusion among the general public about that. The boulevard system dates from 1869 when Burnham was not even in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And uh, the plan of Chicago calls for expanding the boulevard system, but it doesn't set it up in any sense. Wow. That had already been built, started in 1869, but really in the 1870s and 1880s under the guidance of the three park districts, the Lincoln Park District for the North Division of the city the West Parks Commission and the South Park Commission that set up all of these boulevards to connect the big inland parks, whether it's uh, Washington with uh, Jackson Park, then on the west side, 
Garfield, Douglas, and Humboldt Parks, all linked together by boulevards. This was supposed to be linked to the lakefront through Garfield Boulevard and through uh, Diversity Parkway. Diversity uh, ran into some legal issues and uh, never really became that kind of parkway that we see elsewhere in the city. But, but no, the boulevards and, and inland parks are all set up in the era of the 1870s, long before Burnham is anticipating changes to the city. Mm, interesting. Didn't know that. And of course, this was not for automobile traffic. This was for horse. For carriages. carriages. Uh, and then the bicycling craze of the 1880s and 90s gave a great push toward putting asphalt, uh, smooth asphalt paving on the boulevards because they were pleasure drives that prohibited Teamsters wagons, uh, heavy freight hauling wagons, and because they prohibited, uh, they didn't grant franchises to the street railway companies to run streetcars on them. So these were free of those kinds of problems for the bicyclist or the early automobilist. Instead, they were these smooth asphalt pavements. And for other legal reasons, the intersecting streets had to give way to traffic on the boulevards. And as a result, the boulevards became the preferred routes in and out of town for the early motorists. And if you look at the early maps published as late as the 1930s and 40s by Chicago Motor Club, it will always show the boulevards as routes in and out of town in ways that we don't really think of them today. You know, nobody says, oh, Augusta Boulevard, there's your your speedway through the northwest side. But at the time, they considered it that way. For reasons that are still a little hazy to me, it seems that in the teens and early 20s, we began designating additional boulevards just so they could be through streets. And some of them, I'm not entirely sure why, if it was just because they thought it would increase the value of property that was on them. For instance, you look at Pratt as a boulevard or South Normal Boulevard, some others that are scattered around outlying districts of the city. And it's not clear which of them were done as sort of real estate promotion and which of them were done so that the motorists could speed through on streets that that every other street had to yield to. Was Ogden considered a boulevard? Portions of Ogden were a boulevard, although, yeah, they, okay. they were. I think that's linked more to it having a routing through Douglas Park okay. and some other things that may have been happening at the time. But as we know, that also becomes Route 66 leading right. out of the city. Yeah. When you say boulevard, may often mean a median between the traffic on each side with then maybe a parkway in the middle and some trees is that necessarily a boulevard definition or well in the 1980s i worked on the city's boulevard restoration plan and it turns out that we have a lot of different what city planners call cross sections and so the broad median that is seen well obviously the midway plaisance is in a class by itself but some other places around the boulevard system. Like Logan Boulevard, kind of not too far from me. But 
you remember Logan doesn't have a, a center media. It right. only has the side service drives. Ah, uh, right. Oh, okay. That's right. Where the plantings. Sort of the reverse of what yeah. I'm envisioning. Yeah. And so I think I calculated one time only 18% of the city's boulevard network has the center media. The rest of it is a four lane center drive with the service drive separated by parkways or planted strips on both sides of it. Okay. How interesting, Dennis, how the bicycle drove the boulevard system because we're coming full circle with like the 606 trail, whatnot, where these repurposed roads are becoming bike paths and walkways and incredibly popular and great for real estate. <laughs> Again, Chicago has always been a hustler town, right? Right. Great for real estate. But it's nice to see that the bicycle was a, a driver in that and as it is now. Well, the availability of recreation maybe more so than the cyclists themselves, for instance. I don't know that we've seen very much of an uptick in values along the major Taylor Trail down through some more troubled neighborhoods of Chicago or, sure. or even where it uh, dips into Beverly. And uh, But it is interesting how the last couple mayors have made building bike trails uh, a priority because Maybe it's the fact that there are younger people moving to the city who want to ride their bikes like Patrick, who could <laughs> ride 60 miles to drop of a hat. <laughs> Unlike me, I'll just jump on a Divi bike for a mile or two. But well, it, and Dennis is an avid cyclist as well. Yeah. But it is nice to see that the cyclists are at least getting some input. <laughs> it's a rebalancing from <laughs> having only the motorists in charge of so much of the city's public realm. Anyway, we were talking about rationalizing the street system in the Burnham and Bennett plan of Chicago. I leafed through the plan, and I, in retrospect, it's pretty straightforward. I mean, he goes through the usual approach of, all right, what has been done in other cities? Here's what other plans have happened. And then you go through the various different sections or chapters of it, which are, you know, things like transportation and railroads and parks and that kind of thing. And browsing through it before we talked, I thought, well, it's interesting how there's not a lot of great detail other than the images that are, are really powerful in this book. It feels like those are the essence of the plan, almost more so than the text, although the, the, the text tends to say larger conceptual from my you know, skimming through it again. Well, it's a little bit of a, a quandary. What did the plan actually call for? Is it what's in the words? Or is it what's in the pictures? Because they don't always agree. Burnham knew that the images would help to sell the plan to the public and make it a, in his words, a living document, exerting itself with ever-growing intensity long after we are gone. If it was illustrated with these renderings that could allow ordinary Chicagoans to imagine themselves living in this much better, much improved metropolis that they saw illustrated in the plan. And so you think about the cost and the trouble required in 1909 to publish these full color renderings, which the plan is just studded with. Putting like a centerfold or- Many, many gatefolds that fold out on both sides to have this really broad view 
bird's eye view of the entire central portion of the city. Many of these just beautifully illustrated by a fellow named Jules Garin, who was uh, also a famous muralist. In fact, he painted the murals that decorate the second floor banking hall of what's today Wintrust in the Central Standard Building at Jackson and LaSalle. Also the murals that are in the lobby of the Merchandise Mart and Civic Opera House. All of those are Garand's work. But for the plan of Chicago, he created these spectacular color renderings that are printed in the plan. And other renderers, under Bennett's guidance in particular, did other drawings for the plan that are published in there. Well, they don't always agree with what's actually in the text. Do they amplify upon that, or are they sort of flights of fancy because the renderer needed to get down to brass tacks? Anyone who's ever kind of taken a conceptual idea from an architect or their father-in-law and turned it into an actual drawing for a garage or for the state of Illinois Center knows that at some point you have to decide on some details that were left a little fuzzy in the original concept description. Raises a lot of questions. <laughs> and so when the Art Institute put up the unseen renderings that were done by the Plan of Chicago Committee. Before it was published. Well, there were a number of renderings that are not in the published plan, and they were exhibited in 2009 during the centenary. And so I went over and studied them. And it's interesting to see some of the diagonal streets that have been erased and, and others that have been chosen that are on some of these drawings. In other cases, I was kind of fascinated that the renderers apparently had enough time to detail where the toilets would be in this city hall, this impossibly tall city hall that is one of the renderings in the plan, or the inscription that's on the entablature over the entrance to some of these buildings that they've come up with something in French that they've put in the entablature. And so it's clear that they had a little idle time on their hands. Anyway, they went a little beyond the prose that Burnham was working out with his editor, Charles Moore, and that would be carefully vetted by the committee that was in charge of the publication of the plan before it actually became the book that was presented at the celebratory dinner in 1909. Well, it, it seems universal to human nature, kind of like with social media posts, Without an image, hardly anybody will read the text, right? Right. And even then, they probably won't read it, as my dad used to say, that the biggest problem in today's society is a non-reader. It's not that they can't, can't right. read, they just don't read. But you know, there are probably 200 people in all of history who have ever read from in paper to in paper Burnham and Bennett's Plan of Chicago, right? Two right, of them I are, skimmed it. I did not read the whole thing. Two of them are sitting at the table here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it's the renderings that were the power of it. And that's one of the points that I make when I talk about the plan of Chicago. Why is it that we managed to remember the plan of Chicago when so many plans before and since are just gathering dust in university libraries, not remembered even 10 years after they're published by the group that commissioned them, whether it's the 
Plan Commission of Chicago or the Department of Planning and Development of whichever city. And it's those renderings that gave so much of the power to the Plan of Chicago. But the other thing that I point to is that it was relentlessly physical. It is, if you look carefully through it, it is not trying to shape the behavior of any private actor or even the politicians, Mm. other than to say, you know, if you're going to build some piers for the improvement of lake navigation, here would be the place to put them. You know, if you're going to widen some streets for better circulation in the city, these would be the ones to do. So the plan of Chicago, even though German cities were already doing some zoning, does not try to zone or say only these types of buildings should be built here or there, does not say there should be a height limit. The renderings only observe the height limit that was already in place for the city of 1909. Mm -hmm. It does not try to change slumlords into people who would care deeply for their tenants. It only says, well, there are some areas of the city that perhaps would benefit by better light and air. And you know, if we cut some new diagonal streets through there, they'd have better light and air. So other than a kind of innocuous phrase that sanitary regulations should be enforced, it does not address itself to the terrible housing problems that Chicago at the time had. It is relentlessly physical and all about the public infrastructure that was going to be constructed anyway. So they really stay above the fray of, and dirt of politics in Chicago. Yes. And Kristen Schaefer at the University of North Carolina, in her introduction to this particular copy of the plan, the yeah. Princeton reprint of it, points out that there's correspondence between the committee of the commercial club that is reviewing Burnham's work and Burnham saying, you know, maybe it would be best to just stick to the physical aspects only. And so they essentially excise two or three chapters that Burnham has already composed about these non-physical aspects of improving the city. So at that time, had the 40-hour work week been put into place? Well, you know, that's the fight of the 1880s. So so certainly the union members had 40 or maybe 45-hour work weeks by then. But a tremendous number of the city's breadwinners were kind of casual workers who might or might not have work any given week, whether they are construction workers or on the extra board at the railroads or employed in seasonal industries, whether it's meatpacking or... Stevedores at the docks. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. So the housing of Chicago's working class was a terrible issue at the time. Even decades later, Marshall Field and his estate make an effort with the Marshall Field Garden Apartments there on North Sedgwick. Rosenwald and his estate make efforts with the Rosenwald Apartments there at 47th and Michigan to create sanitary housing for Chicago's poor. 
but these are tiny efforts compared to the size of the problem. It's not until there's federal money in the Great Depression that Chicago is able to begin public housing on a serious scale with the Ida B. Wells homes at 37th and King or other efforts scattered around the city. And really it's the post-war public housing that finally is able to make a serious impact on the terrible housing and alley dwellings, slum districts that so much of Chicago was housed in as late as 1950. Mm -hmm. And the plan itself, how did that roll out? Was there a big impetus then to do a lot of work right away? And, and what was accomplished? Right away, nothing. Just gets some adulation from the city's newspapers, whose publishers, in some cases, were members of the commercial club to begin with. The business leaders of the city say, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Call me when something's happening. <laughs> and so they eventually persuade the city council, I think 15 months later, to officially adopt the plan, whatever that means. And they set up this rather unwieldy, I think it's 150 member plan commission, but there's just not a great groundswell of support to actually do anything about this. So that is one of the more remarkable stories is how the plan of Chicago kind of gets revived and gets new life breathed into it in the decades after it kind of sinks without a, a trace initially. Burnham was already ailing when he's working on the plan, died in 1912. But because Burnham was seen as the, oh, I'll just use air quotes around the word architect or the builder of the World's Fair that had really brought Chicago onto the world stage, he's remembered as a great man that ought to be celebrated. And when news of his death reaches the symphony orchestra, they perform a piece in his honor because he is a great man who has helped to make a great city and now he is gone. Chris, we're back in the studio. Just wanted to mention this piece of music that's underneath you looked up and found. You mean the Greg Wagner piece that was played when word came down Daniel Burnham had died, which has major gravitas to it. Very solemn piece of music was played when the news was received. It's Siegfried's Death and Funeral March. I believe this is part of a larger composition that Wagner called, excuse my German, Gotter Damenrock. Yeah, when I think of Wagner, I always think about the Bugs Bunny cartoon, you know, kill the <laughs> rabbits. 
Well, that's most childhood's introductions to classical music. Right, right. Looney Tunes cartoons. But when you listen to it, I, this piece of music is is pretty uh, stunning in its uh, weight. You know, you can almost feel the sorrow in it. Pretty powerful piece of music. And this is a recording by the Klaus Turnenstead a London Philharmonic that was recorded on October 18th, 1988 at the Dunturi Hall in Tokyo. And so I think that perhaps leads to some newfound interest in accomplishing some parts of the plan in memory of Burnham or to celebrate his accomplishments, let's do some more of them. Classic human nature, until you're dead, you know, nothing really happens, sadly, when you have good ideas. Right, so Burnham dies having seen nothing happen, Yeah. you know, except for this adoption, whatever that means, by the city council. Mm -hmm. In the aftermath of Burnham's death, there are a couple of things that happen. One is that the plan commission starts funding some public relations efforts and hires a fellow named Walter Moody, who kind of invents the science of public relation in relationship to the plan of Chicago and has a real genius for the topic. And so one of the things that he does is he writes a textbook. Chicago at the time required eighth graders to study Chicago history. And somehow this textbook becomes a supplemental textbook that could be used in eighth grade classes. So here's an entire generation of young Chicagoans who are learning by rote the aspects of the plan of Chicago that are described in what's called the Wacker's Manual of the Plan of Chicago. Well, not only they, but their immigrant parents are also learning by rote what a great city they would have if only they would approve the bond issues that are starting to be put forward by the city administration for these various improvements, whether it's street widening or the creation of what we now call Navy Pier or some of the other aspects of the plan. This is like in the 19 teens, 19, 13, 14? Teens and early 20s. Okay. Uh, really. Charles Wacker we're talking about? The Wack, uh, you said the Wacker plan? Uh, Charles Wacker, as I suspect he pronounced his name before the Great War. Okay. Uh, but Charles Wacker, yes, was a brewer who had uh, retired early and devoted himself to civic causes. And he was the chairman of the plan commission in the teens and early 20s. Yeah. One of the things that is done under the leadership of the plan commission is to sweep away the old South Water Street market, which by then was terribly overcrowded as the motor truck is beginning to make its impact on the city. And they sweep that away and in its place put the South Water Street improvement along the bank of the Chicago River. And when it's finally dedicated in 1926, they remember the recently retired chairman and name it Wacker Drive. And that's why we know it by his name, yeah. Mm -hmm. And aviation enthusiasts know his name because he was the guy who said about that time, 1924, 25, the city needs an airport. 
because other cities are having airports, so let's find a track of land to build an airport. And he's the one that suggested they do it, and then they came up with what we know as Midway Airport. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah, so <laughs> profound uh, changes because of Mr. Wacker. Yeah. Yeah, and it's you know it's it's too bad that schoolboys snicker at his last name, uh, because he was so important in propelling forward so many of these things. The other thing, besides the tremendous public relations effort, the involvement of the civic and business leaders with honoring Burnham or improving the city along the lines that Mr. Burnham suggested, the other thing that happens in the 1920s is not quite uh, so noble. And that is the election of Big Bill Thompson. William Thompson gets elected mayor. I mean, he, he he's a guy, of course, who will get a, I'm sure, a podcast episode of his own sometime. <laughs> but if you look up corrupt buffoon in the, you know, in the dictionary, it's illustrated with a picture of Big Bill Thompson. Uh, <laughs> this is a guy who gets elected by being outrageous, threatening to, you know, punch the King of England in the snoot if he ever comes to Chicago, as if that is a major issue for most Chicago voters. But got the Irish vote, though. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I guess in the aftermath of Easter Rising, he definitely would have. Yeah, definitely. Uh, at any rate. Precise personality. <laughs> and I understand he was also a sailor. He was part of the Chicago Yacht Club and had a very large cowboy. Yacht. And, oh, yeah. Quite the character. Uh, I mean, we might draw a parallel between him and a recent president of the United States in being kind of a reality TV star before there was any such thing as TV. So he gets elected, immediately starts looking for things to build so he can hand out contracts to his cronies. And here is a 150-page book full of things that need to be built. So Thompson, and for better or worse, looking for contracts that he and his buddies can skim public money from, begins building a lot of the improvements in the plan of Chicago in the 1920s. Now, it happens to coincide with the time when Chicago is experiencing a huge amount of prosperity and growth anyway. Lots of things need to be rebuilt and improved upon. And so it's a happy coincidence that you have somebody who wants to be seen as a builder, who wants to hand out public works contracts, and who sort of has the ear of Chicagoans, vote for these bond issues and we'll improve the city. What they can see in both the plan and its uh, illustrations that are in the newspapers, the textbook that the eighth graders are bringing home to the kitchen table. They can see these renderings of what the great future city would look like. And so the bond issues pass until there begins to be a lot of doubts and questions raised about Thompson and his cronies' involvements at the end of the 1920s, and things start to go sour for some of the bond issues. But all through the 20s, Chicago is building, building big, and building along the lines of the Burnham and Bennett plan of Chicago. Yeah, so the phrase of Roaring Twenties, a whole new concept when you think about Chicago and Big Bill Thompson being kind of a lot of hot air at times. It, it, he's probably roaring 
It was building just for Chicago half the time. He's building all those damn bridges, Patrick. Whenever I walk, <laughs> walk over those bridges, it always says Mayor William Hale Thompson. Well, and as I was listening to Dennis talk about the bonds, there was, you know, in some of the research I did on, on my book on Chicago bridges, there was a, a big building period from the 19, you know, early 1900s to 1911, and then another phase from 1914 on up into the mid to late 20s and some of the most iconic bridges that were built during that time um, which would have been through the big bill thompson era um, and i'm thinking of michigan avenue in 1920 and well chris he got to open that one but i don't think he was the one who kicked that off right LaSalle street LaSalle street was the definitely next one i was going to mention yeah. which is the second most ornamented bridge in chicago and it runs right down into the financial district from the north side. Past Thompson's office on the fifth floor of City Hall, right? Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. And I think he was mayor and then he lost and then ran again and won. Right. Because I know he was mayor during the red summer of 1919. Mm -hmm. Before cell phones, he was on a train out in Wyoming and the train stopped and they're like, you got to get back to Chicago. <laughs> going up in flames here. But um, yeah, so then I know he also dedicated Municipal Airport, yeah. 1926, May 8, 1926. So, yeah, so that he, he caught the before and the after of kind of that period. I think we can. Midway, right? Yes, Midway Airport. Okay. Yeah, Midway yeah. Airport. Sorry, Dennis, go ahead. No, I, I think we can imagine the fellow of Thompson's personality not missing any ribbon cuttings. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, engineering some to occur just before re election time. In fact, there's a funny photo of him in, in the in an airplane, a biplane with the, with a cap, the leather cap, and he looks ridiculous. Yeah. And the goggles, just ridiculous. He's a big guy. Yeah. He barely fit inside the, the plane. Uh, speaking of municipal, like municipal airport, Dennis, tell us about municipal pier number two from the plan. Well, we know it as Navy Pier, but the plan of Chicago anticipated uh, some things that didn't happen. And one was the continued growth in lake navigation. As it happens, railroads and then by the 1930s, trucking became much more important in moving freight around the Great Lakes region than navigation on the Great Lakes uh, was when Burnham and Bennett were working on the plan of Chicago. But they thought that Chicago needed to have a huge harbor facility downtown and uh, that it would, and this is kind of followed up by a 1926 Harbor Plan of Chicago that suggests building these uh, great piers that would extend out into the lake in an area that would be protected by a, a big outer breakwater. Instead, by the 1920s, the tide was already turning I guess that's a poor metaphor to use when talking about lake <laughs> navigation. But at any rate, the <laughs> by the 1920s, or even really even the teens, the harbor facilities are starting to move down to Lake Calumet, which is a protected harbor that was would be dr dramatically improved between that time and the opening of the 1959 uh, St. Lawrence, Lawrence Seaway in uh, 1959. So the need for a harbor at the mouth of the Chicago River did not turn out to be as extreme as Burnham and Bennett expected it to be. And so only one of the proposed piers was ever built, 
finished in 1915, shortly thereafter named to honor the sailors who had served in the Great War, so renamed Navy Pier at the same time that Grant Park Stadium was renamed Soldier Field to honor those who served in the Army during the Great War. And that's World War I. For World War I, for yes, for, for, our, for a younger and more sensitive listeners, yeah. And Dennis, looking at your the Plan of Chicago Regional Legacy brochure that you worked on, it looks like that Pier Number 1 would have started at like where Soldier Field is and then jut into the lake so it would be parallel with pier number two. Well, and as the South Park Commission uh, and the Plan Commission guided the landfill for what we know as Northerly Island, early 1920s, I guess, they put that at the position where one of the piers had been proposed. Right. But I see. the Harbor Plan of 1926 kind of amplifies the suggestion for the outer breakwater and these big piers in this central area, surprisingly, also calls for a little three-runway airport that would be on landfill exactly where Northerly Island was built. So in 1926, they are calling for an airport where Miggs Field later was built. Boy, don't tell that to Richard M. Daly. No. <laughs> well, well, in parallel to this, from the bridge perspective, ideas floated around where you would basically make all the bridges downtown fixed bridges and have that exterior harbor as the means to then use, I guess, land transportation from those piers and just have a big harbor on the lakefront and not have to use the Chicago River as the harbor for Chicago. And that just never never came through because there was also federal legislation by that point uh, controlling navigation on the rivers in Chicago, the Chicago River and also Calumet. But the interesting thing to, to study in the plan is Burnham is proposing a combination of recreation and commerce at these lakefront piers. And so he has a sketch that shows that there's going to be parkland and public facilities. It's not entirely clear what it would be, a beer garden or an outdoor restaurant or all of those bandstands, indoor ballrooms. On one side of this projection out into the lake, while there would be uh, railroad tracks and finger piers at which the Great Lakes boats could dock on the other side. And so when Navy Pier is finally built, that idea is still very much on the table. And so that's why it is constructed with the ballroom and uh, beer garden and promenade facilities as recreational mm -hmm. opportunities for the public that we still enjoy today, even as there are freight sheds and derrick cranes to offload bags of stuff from the Great Lakes boats in the middle of the pier as well as the railroad connection that is now gone. Maybe they learned their lesson from the uh, 1859 beer lager riot. Lager riots, yeah. yeah. Include <laughs> the beer as part of the plan. Turns out that uh, it's not so much the opiate of the masses in Chicago as the hops of the masses. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then, you know, of course, want the ability to get out on the lake or near the lake breezes in a time Hot when there's, you know, there's no air conditioning, that that's some relief from the heat. Oh, so. indeed. And... Uh, 
And that is the other, really the, probably the greatest legacy of the plan of Chicago that we haven't really talked about much yet. And that is our public and extended lakefront that Burnham points out annually the city is disposing of enough clean fill material by carrying it far out in the lake and dumping it to create, oh, maybe 25 or 30 acres of new landfill. And that if they would put that adjacent to the shoreline, Chicago could get all of these new lakefront parks for free. And both the Lincoln Park Commission and the South Park Commission finally unified it in 1934 as the Chicago Park Commission, but long before that, take to this idea in a big way. And we build almost 1,800 acres of new landfill in the teens, 20s, 30s, all up and down the North Lake Front and the South Lake Front with Burnham Park and Rainbow Beach area, where we extend out into Lake Michigan with landfill and create new public parkland. So when you go out at, say, Montrose Beach, you're three quarters of a mile, just as you are at the tip of Navy Pier, from the noisy, smoky, dirty, oh, just incredibly loud and hot city of the teens and 20s before air conditioning made it tolerable mm. on you know these two dozen summer days that we get that are above 85. So this is a tremendous gift to the city to be able to go out on either the lakefront parks or the tip of Navy Pier and enjoy those lake breezes that are never never hotter than 70 degrees. Well, and that's still the beauty of the, the lakefront harbor system that we have, which is the biggest, I think, harbor system in the world of any one city where you have 10 different harbors. And I, I enjoyed that last night. I went and <laughs> met some friends down at Belmont Harbor and you're sitting out on the dock just a few hundred yards from the congestion of Belmont and the north side there, and, and yet it's it's a relief from that congestion, and it was a gorgeous night, and we had a great sunset. <laughs> that, too, is, is kind of an amazing part of Chicago. And those parks are so popular when I commute on Lakeshore Drive in a, a weekday. When you get up by Montrose, you better pull over to the left because there's a parking lot of cars getting off at those exits to enjoy a soccer game or a game of cricket or something it's jammed yeah in the summer yeah and there's some lakefront restaurants there at Montrose and some, some of the other lakefront harbors and beaches that you know people make a great use of I mean I think one of the sad things is they're now gonna charge for parking at Montrose which is one of the last places you could park for free on the lakefront and I think if we go back to looking at all right how do we make the city more equitable and one of the issues that I feel like ought to be addressed at some point is there should be a way to make it inexpensive to get to the lakefront and not always have to pay for parking. Well, um, there's four bus lines that go there. That's true. <laughs> As the guy who drew the CTA map, I feel obliged to point that out. And, and we've done a better and better job of improving the pedestrian bridges going over Lakeshore Drive for people to get to the lake as well. Right. So while we're talking about the lakefront, I, I want to mention a new book by Joseph Carney of Marquette Law School and Tom Merrill of Columbia Law School called Lakefront, Public Trust and Private Rights in Chicago. I worked on all the maps for and some of the research for these guys on this new book. There are some 
important other factors in why we get to enjoy a public lakefront in Chicago when the other Great Lakes cities don't. And those are detailed in this new book. But the vision that Burnham had in the plan of Chicago and that Bennett and the park commissions and the city pushed forward in the teens and 20s are just an incredible legacy to all the generations of Chicagoans that get to enjoy that public lakefront now and forever after, we hope. Is that why they built Northerly Island, Dennis? That's called for. It was to be the first of a string of offshore islands. You know, the, the lake is a little shallower on the south side than it is on the north. There's okay. some shoals around 43rd that are pretty close to the surface. Anyway, Burnham, it's interesting. He grew up uh, looking out on offshore islands in Lake Ontario. And it's interesting that that's what he recommends to connect downtown with Jackson Park is a series of offshore islands that would protect these lagoons that could be used by much smaller boats. I see. You know, if you're out in a canoe, much less a kayak, and the waves start topping two feet, you really don't want to be out on open Lake Michigan. Sure. But if you're in the Lincoln Park Lagoon or a lagoon that would be created on the south side, leeward of Northerly Island or other islands that would stretch all the way to Jackson Park, now you would have room for that kind of lakefront recreation. And Northerly Island, as the name suggests, was to be the northernmost of a whole string of islands. Unfortunately, it's the only one that was ever built in the 20s. They began doing the landfill operations that created Northern Island there. Well, what great timing with the Century of Progress. Well, it's sort of the other way around because they now had this land that wasn't yet programmed. Oh, I got you. They put the new fuel museum out there and the Shad Aquarium, the Adler Planetarium was being talked about when Chicago civic leaders began talking about, hey, maybe we should have another World's Fair because the last one was so great for the city. And so in the 1920s, they began making plans for what eventually becomes the century of progress in 1933, held exactly, as you say, on this new landfill. And it's big. I mean, I went to an event there recently and I walked from the Adler south and I was walking forever. And I mean, I was just like, man, this is way bigger than I remember. Which is interesting, I mean, because when you drive past, you don't always think about that. Well, you may have stumbled onto the half-mile treadmill that was installed when they did the nature park out. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but unfortunately, a part of it has fallen in, has not been able to withstand the winter battering of the lake in the way that the engineers had hoped and is currently closed. But the high water levels. But it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a nice new feature for the city. And there's a great beach there, too, that I stumbled across. Oh, 12th Street Beach? Yeah, it's really yeah, it's nice. one of the unsung gems of the city, and uh, more tourists should know that it's an easy walk. It's almost like a pocket beach. It's kind of hidden in there, and it was lovely. It is. Also, there's a sledding hill over there in the wintertime. The sledding hill was done as part of the reconstruction of Soldier Field in 2003, I guess that was. And being in Chicago, that is probably the highest soil structure in a thousand miles. <laughs> oh, well, you know, there's Mount Trashmore in uh, in South Evanston, and oh, there's that's right. 
there's some other odds and ends, including toboggan slides, now closed, alas, at Palos uh, Forest Preserve. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I remember seeing video, yeah. uh, old home movies of kids taking uh, those toboggans. <laughs> So getting back to our thread, you know, we were talking about some of the things that have been done since Burnham died towards his plan, and we've done a lot in the, in the 20s. And so is there anything more recent that's happened that, that matches the plan or has been pulled from the plan that's significant? Well, I guess it depends on how you feel about the Eisenhower Expressway. When Chicago is thinking about superhighways in the 1930s, and most people don't realize that Chicago began thinking about superhighways in the 1920s. But in the 1930s, they draw up a plan that is pretty much what we got. And part of that is a great west side artery. Burnham and Bennett are still, in a sense, looking over the shoulders of the engineers who are working on this. Unfortunately, the landscaping Bennett and Burnham would have called for for such an artery does not survive into the final plans. But one of the ideas that is in the plan of Chicago and particularly is uh, illustrated in the Wacker's manual is the idea of a multi-use corridor that would have slow roadway, fast roadway for carriages and automobiles, and an electric interurban railroad all side by side. And so when they are planning what will become the Eisenhower Expressway, this idea is very much on their mind. And as it happens, the Garfield Park elevated line is right in the way of where they want to put this new superhighway. So they build what they describe as an open air subway for the rapid transit trains to go down the middle of the superhighway. That's a mixed blessing because it condemns Westsiders to waiting for the train out in the middle of the, the cold and noisy superhighway. But it did at least allow Chicago to keep these three rapid transit corridors that eventually got built in the median of the Kennedy, the Eisenhower, and the Dan Ryan to expand our rapid transit network at a time when there was really no other way to do that in the early 1960s. So the Congress Superhighway or Eisenhower Expressway is maybe the last thing that we can say kind of comes from the pages of the plan. Mm -hmm. But there are continued efforts, certainly the last four miles effort that Friends of the Parks was pushing and continues to push with a little less vigor these days to complete the publicly accessible lakefront is something that definitely we can say is a legacy of the plan of Chicago. You know, just the idea that our entire lakefront should be public parkland is very much part of that legacy. There's a vocabulary, a design vocabulary that Bennett gave to us in designing improvements such as Wacker Drive or uh, Grant Park, that neoclassical design vocabulary 
that has been picked up on in recent decades by new designers, whether it's Dirk Lohan on the part of the river walk next to the Sheraton Hotel on the north bank of the river there through City Front Center, or Diane Legekamp in designing the 1994 Roosevelt Road Viaduct, picking up on this same design vocabulary of obelisks with globe light fixtures around all four sides that Bennett had used in designing the original part of Wacker Drive in the 1920s. Today, we think of that as part of the civic vocabulary of new public works in Chicago. And so there are a lot of things like that that are also part of the legacy of the plan. And you're kind of using that word vocabulary in sort of an architectural sense of, That's right. of That's... these shapes and forms that are redundant or have been used or redone in different formats. Right. Okay. Yeah. This has been the education of getting into <laughs> to Chicago architecture after doing some of the bridges, realizing that, wow, there's a whole, you know, there's a whole world to architecture, who would have thought? But, uh, and that you guys have your own language when you start talking architecture that is a little bit different than the common usage. Right. But isn't it true, Dennis, that in 1909, there were automobiles, there just weren't a lot of them, and that they didn't really anticipate a Lakeshore Drive or, or the fact that people would be driving using the automobile throughout the city? Well, uh, I think that has gotten a little bit misinterpreted by, I will say, with <laughs> with the warmest of intentions, the car haters of, <laughs> of the early 21st century. Burnham was an early automobilist, drove to and from his home in Evanston, Oh, really? Okay. Along, of course, he had to use Sheridan Road, Lakeshore Drive not having yet been invented. Sure. But Burnham writes in the plan of Chicago, something that will shock a lot of latter-day celebrants. He writes, it is to be hoped that the automobile will continue the good work begun by the bicycle, that of getting city dwellers out of the urban environment to the healthful countryside. He is imagining the rich man who is able to take his family, or maybe even the upper middle class man who's able to take his family on a Sunday drive to say the chain of lakes up in McHenry County, or out into the hills such as they are of the Palos region, Mm -hmm. and to be able to take a walk in nature. He is not anticipating everybody driving from a home in DuPage County to a workplace in Lake County using I-355. He is not anticipating an eight-lane superhighway that carries more commuters than pleasure traffic through Lincoln Park. Would he have totally hated Lakeshore Drive? Well, not in the beginning. Certainly its use to allow ordinary Chicagoans' views of the lake and of the lakefront parks eight months out of the year, I think he would have celebrated. But I suspect he would have wanted more ways to cross it seamlessly, like the transverse drives of a New York Central Park. Uh, That's tough to do in Chicago's high water table environment. Certainly would have wanted it designed much more harmoniously with the landscape than what we ended up with from the highway engineers of the 1940s, even 1930s, really. Those concepts fit very nicely with that whole City Beautiful movement that 
was also pitched as a way to bring art and architecture to the common man, you know, in the dirty, smoky city by trying to put art into the public works and the public buildings and environment that was being constructed. Well, the City Beautiful movement is primarily about arranging the, the buildings around, shall we say, park-like settings, giving them architectural vocabulary, now that we know that word, that would make the citizens aspire to self-government in the same way that the ancient Romans or Greeks did. But it soon gives rise to the honoring of the natural landscape and the parkway movement. So Olmsted and others working in his wake create the parkway first as pleasure drives in kind of outer districts of the city, as we see in Brooklyn and the Bronx. Then in the 1930s, as limited access roads through parkland, as is built or all around Washington, D.C., Mount Vernon Parkway, Rock Creek Parkway, some in Virginia as well. And in Chicago, North Lakeshore Drive is from that tradition. There are some that are purely rural in nature, the Blue Ridge Parkway, the Natchez Trace Parkway, built during the Public Works Administration New Deal era in more rural parts of the United States. But Lakeshore Drive comes from one of the two parents of the modern superhighway, and that is the parkway tradition of having a limited access road from which you can enjoy the landscape that is honored in things like the Merritt Parkway of Connecticut or some others around the country that got perverted in cost-cutting and value engineering as we built out the interstate superhighway network in a big hurry in the early 1960s. And, and were these parkways originally a European idea? They're European precedents, but I really think Olmsted is probably the pioneer figure in parkways. Later, of course, the Autobahn in Germany under National Socialism, unfortunately, but it is still an honorable invention to connect the cities with superhighways that have landscaping on both sides of them. And Olmsted would have worked with Burnham down at the World's Fair, the Columbia Exposition, because he was the landscape architecture right. working with that group just to tie it back to Chicago. That's right. Burnham and Olmsted worked together on the grounds of the World's Columbian Exposition and then also worked together on the Macmillan Plan in 1902 for uh, central Washington, D.C. So Burnham really internalizes a lot of Olmsted's ideas and brings them out, particularly in the plans for San Francisco, for Manila and Baguio in the Philippines, and eventually his final work, Chicago, in 1909. There was one piece that I wanted to read from the plan where Burnham and Bennett say, if therefore the plan is a good one, its adoption and realization will produce for us conditions in which business enterprise can be carried on with the utmost economy and with the certainty of successful issue, while we and our children can enjoy and improve life as we cannot now do. Then our own people will become homekeepers and the stranger will seek our gates. I like that. The strangers will <laughs> seek our gates. Visitors to Chicago every year 
for conventions and, and tourism. So it, it seems like the plan has done served Chicago pretty well. I think that's right. And this is how I conclude a lot of my lectures talking about the plan. And there are a couple of long lasting, shall we say, philosophic legacies that come from it. One, which appeals very much to people like me and my colleagues in the city planning profession, which I sort of worked in for a number of uh, decades, is the idea that if you just make a plan good enough, it will have a life beyond the document or even those who composed it. The well-ordered diagram will have a propelling logic in and of itself that people will grasp and be moved to act upon. And boy, that's an appealing idea to people who are otherwise in the weeds or across the front counter, you know, dealing with zoning variances and the minutia of trying to make anything happen against political and economic tides that are running the other way in modern city planning. Well, you, you don't see many media interviews of city planners. Right? No. They don't really hit the highlight, spotlight very much. <laughs> you know, although we have a new design uh, commission just announced by our uh, plan commissioner, and so Chicago is kind of turning back to design as something that's really important in the day-to-day -day workings of approving floor area ratio or bulk or uh, waiving requirements for uh, real estate development. But let's go back to the other great legacy of the plan of Chicago, which Burnham expressed in a number of ways, including one that I think is terrifically applicable to 21st century Chicago. He says at one point, beauty pays better than any other commodity and always has. I'm sure that I'm bollocksing up his exact wording. I have the quote put up as part of the PowerPoint with a picture of Millennium Park, because for better or for worse, whatever you think of Richard M. Daly and his legacy to the city, including those parking meters that we're still gonna be paying off for another 68 years, uh, whatever you think of him, Richard M. Daly saw that in a footloose world of people who could set up their tech shops anywhere on the planet. Having beauty was vital to remain part of the growing world of the economy. And Chicago doesn't have the natural scenery that Silicon Valley or Denver or even the hill country around Austin has. So we have to make our own scenery. We have to hope that our architects will create a skyline that we're struck by, and we have to do public improvements, whether it's Millennium Park or those that are in less well-served parts of the city that will cause these entrepreneurs to want Chicago to be their homes and the place where they grow their businesses. So I think that that is a great legacy of the plan of Chicago to remember into the future why it is still relevant for us today. That's great. Absolutely, that's that's a wonderful, it's a wonderful sentiment. Thank you, Dennis, for including us in that. I feel like we just had a private 
tutorial in the plan of Chicago. One thing we like to do for fun is we ask everybody if there was a time machine and you could go back, you can go maybe go back more than once. <laughs> Where would you go? What would you do? I think it would have been fun to be in the tar paper shack erected on the roof of the railway exchange building in which the young architects and renderers, Bennett leading them, Burnham bringing in the, the city's business leaders were actually batting about the various ideas and why this or that just could not be done. No, it has to be done. Can't be done. No railroad will ever agree to that. You know, those, I think those discussions probably would be much more enlightening than all of the speeches that took place on that July 4th celebratory banquet. And I bet cigars would be involved in that too. Well, no doubt. No doubt the windows were always open uh, <laughs> if they could be in that tar paper shack. Thank you. Thank you for your time and patience. And Thank and you very much, great. Dennis. This has been wonderful. Happy to do so. Audio editing by Christopher Lynch and Patrick McBriarty at the Waveland Island Studios. And special thanks to Jill Hoganson for the idea and branding assistance and Nate Kennedy for technical support and specking our audio equipment. Thank you for listening to the Windy City Historians Podcast.